Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. Uh, and so we're going to take a look in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 20. I want to say this on the front end, especially when it comes to conversations in churches regarding uh, sex. We got to remember how all of this started. You know, when you go back into Genesis 1:28, you have God creates uh, man and woman. He brings them together and he says, be fruitful and multiply. Well, there is a way that happens. So on the front end, you have this command that God gives where he's, he's doing something that is meant to be a blessing to people. Now, the reason that we're even having to have this conversation is because what happens is we take a good part of God's creation and we make it something that God didn't intend it to be. And that's why Paul's having to write this as he wrote the church in Corinth. Just so you know, Corinth was a highly sexualized society. Sounds a lot like us, doesn't it? A lot like it. You know what's strange? It's like all these thousands of years later and not much has changed. They were a highly sexualized society. In fact, sexual promiscuity was so common in Corinth that to Corinthianize was a verb. Now, you know it's bad when people take your name and make a verb out of it, right? But that's exactly how people saw the Corinthians. If someone was Corinthianized, it meant that they were a sexual deviant. Just so you know, Corinth had more than 1,000 prostitutes. And usually those prostitutes were a part of the worship in the temples, in the pagan temples around them. Here's the way that it works. Scholars have pointed this out. It worked out to about one out of every 30 people that you saw walking around Corinth was a prostitute. That is amazing. So it's not surprising, just so you know, it's not surprising that the church in Corinth dealt with these things. And by the way, let me say this. Let that be an encouragement to some of you. Maybe you feel a little off being in church because you have a sexual past. Like if people found out about your history, they wouldn't want you here. Maybe you came in and you feel that way. Here's something I want you to hear on the front end. That isn't true. That isn't true. Where else would I want you to be except for here? Just like these people in Corinth were bringing all of that baggage in with them when they came into the church and they started to see things in a whole new way. What I hope this morning is that you will start to see things in a whole new way. I want you to be encouraged because Jesus' original band of disciples included a number of people with sexually dysfunctional pasts. And his earliest churches were filled with people with sexual issues, just like us. Uh, there's a, a guy named St. Augustine. Some of y'all call him Augustine, and you would be wrong. <laughs> St. Augustine, boy, now that guy had a past. Now, before he came to Jesus, he was actually known as quite a womanizer. He also becomes one of the earliest church fathers and really one of the, the great theologians of the early church. God can do a great work. The story is told of St. Augustine that after he had come to Christ, he was kind of walking through the streets, and this woman, well, that he had had a relationship with in the past, they had sex, she sees him walking the streets and she calls out his name. And he looks and he sees her and she calls his name. Well, she keeps coming up to him. And as she comes up to him and she says his name one more time, 
obviously there was something that the woman was thinking because they had this previous relationship with each other that was a sexual relationship. And as she said his name, she said, here's the thing, I'm not that man anymore. I'm not that man. See, what I would hope is that we could take whatever brokenness that it is that we brought into this place, that we can lay it at the feet of Jesus and know that his grace is sufficient to cover it. That is what I would hope today, that your story would be a lot like St. Augustine before, that maybe something from your past comes up and you see it in your face and you say, I am not the same person anymore. I have taken on a whole new way of life. That's what we would hope today. Here's what Paul's going to do. Here's what he's going to say. Because our bodies and our souls are one, they are connected, sex is far from a meaningless physical activity. It has an extremely spiritual dimension to it. Uh, there's a researcher named Donna Friedis, and she wrote a book called Sex and the Soul. She's up at, at the University of Notre Dame. One of the things that she's pointed out over decades of research is the younger generation right now is really buying into the hookup culture. Now, basically, the idea is this, is that there is this disconnection, at least they believe, there's this disconnection between their body and their emotions. So they believe it. And so they have absolutely no problem with having a hookup with someone. And now that might include sexual intercourse or it might just include making out. Like I said, we're going to be a little bit blunt today. It might include that. But they actually believe that what happens to the body really doesn't necessarily have a deep and lasting impact to the soul. Well, the church at Corinth actually believed the exact same thing. What I do with my body is what I do with my body, but it doesn't have an impact on my soul. Paul wants to give a word of correction to that. A couple of thousand years ago, like I said, not much has changed today. Look at what he says in verse 9. He says, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, verse 10, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. Don't you love the past tense for your life, maybe? That's what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Two parts to your life. The before, you met Jesus, and then there's the after. It's the rest of what He wants to do with you. There's quite a list here of people. He doesn't just talk about sexual sin. Did you see that? But He talks about it quite a bit. We've got to be fair. Here's, here's this idea. The church at Corinth had these adages, kind of these slogans about things. And you see these pop up when Paul's writing this letter to the church. Look at verse 12. He says, I have the right to do anything, you say, you say. That was a common slogan. Here's what Paul says. Well, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I'll not be mastered by anything. Let me, let me give you an aside here. So you go, what's going on? Why is he even saying this? Here's the answer. Paul is quoting some popular beliefs in the culture, and he's responding to them, just like the church should. And when it comes to issues of human sexuality, the world is certainly talking about it quite a bit. The question for the church is, is do we want God's voice to be heard in the mix of voices? My vote is yes, which is why we're talking about it today. So he's not affirming what they believe. He's just reporting it. These are the kinds of things that you say. You know, we actually have modern day slogans even today. For example, what happens in Vegas? Yeah, except for sexually transmitted diseases and things, <laughs> right? I mean, that's the part of the slogan that they don't include, but it's true. 
Here's what Paul says. You say this, I have the right to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. And Paul's spot on with that. See, some Christians in Corinth were actually thinking something like this. Since I'm saved by grace, I don't have to worry about the law. And so since I've accepted Jesus and his salvation is a free gift to me, I can do whatever I want. Isn't that awesome? It's also very wrong, but it's what they were believing. What Paul was saying is this. No, you were saved from sin so that you can love God who you weren't loving before and you can love your neighbor. What does it mean to love your neighbor? Well, how you treat them is a large part of it. It's a large part of it. That's what the Christians were thinking. So is, we would have to ask this question. Is what I'm doing loving to God, loving and beneficial to other people, and even to myself? That's the question. Notice what he says. I will not be mastered by anything. And there are some people that are flat mastered by sex. It owns them. They're in bondage to it. And they don't know how to get out of it. See, being freed from the law doesn't mean I give myself over to every single desire that I have. Quite the opposite. And not everything my body desires is right. But it doesn't mean that the desire isn't real. When it comes to issues of sexuality, hear hear what I'm trying to tell you. It's not a matter, are you going to have sexual desires at times? Even for those of you that are married, for someone that isn't your spouse. The answer is, you probably will at some time. The question that Paul's trying to get at is, what do you do with those desires that you find yourself having? And not every action that you take will be a beneficial one. Some are, some aren't. Not everything is beneficial. I'll give you another example. Not even sexual in nature. All of you could leave Woodridge today, and you can go eat Taco Bell for three hours You're free to do it. I don't know that it's beneficial. You get the idea. Winston Churchill. I don't know if you know this. He had seven whiskeys a day on average and three brandies. And he smoked or chewed eight to ten cigars a day. He was free to do it. It just wasn't beneficial. And Paul's saying, and what you do with your body You might talk about your freedom to do it. You might want to get around to the question of, is it loving God? Is it loving the other? And is it beneficial? You might want to get to that question. Here's another slogan. You see it in verse 13. He says, you say, and that's when you know, they're talking about some slogan in Corinth. You say this, food for the stomach, stomach for food. God will destroy them both. Here's the idea. When you're hungry, what do you do? You eat. And so there's no difference between eating when you're hungry and having sex when you have sexual desires. Basically the idea. Bodily desires, they got to be satisfied. It's like the Snickers commercial. (laughs) You're not you when you're hungry. Take a bite of the Snickers and you're like, "Mm, I'm back to myself. It's basically the same thing. What you do with bodily desires, what I eat satisfies my hunger. Well, sex is going to satisfy my sexual desires. Here's the thing, and this is why the the, the phrase was food for the stomach, stomach for food. God will destroy them both. What is he going to destroy? Well, the Corinthians had this belief that he was going to destroy ultimately the body and food. You were going to be a spirit. 
They demeaned and displaced the belief in the beauty of the creation of the body. And a lot of that is because they had been influenced by a philosopher named Plato. Ever heard of him? Plato believed that there was this struggle, an inherent struggle between your spirit and your body. Your body was ultimately corrupting the purity of the soul. And so you find yourself at this, with this struggle. The body is not a good thing, but the soul is the good thing. And so the ultimate escape is to escape from the body. The body is bad. Paul says the body's not bad. The body is good. It was a part of God's creation. Now, what you're doing with your body might be bad. One of the ways that we know that our bodies are valuable is because of Jesus' own resurrection. That he defeats death. He rises bodily from the grave, and it shows that the body is a beautiful and good part of God's creation. We need to remember that. So Paul's making a correction. The Corinthians are saying this, sex is just a physical act. Paul is saying what you do with your body will have an impact on your soul. Just so you know, we have the same feeling as Paul when a sexual crime is committed. We do. We actually agree with him. There's something There is something different about a sex crime than jaywalking. We believe what he's saying when it comes to things like that. And your reaction to those things actually helps make the point that he's making right here. And so he gives us this word. You see it in verse 15. He says, don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? He goes, never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh, just like Genesis quoted before. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. What impacts the body impacts the soul. What impacts the soul impacts the body. Notice what he says, you join with them, you become one with them. And he's even, he's even kicking it up a notch because he goes, you're doing this stuff with prostitutes. Should you be in your faith in Christ, taking Christ into these places and joining him with who you're joining up with? Because that's exactly what you're doing. And notice when he talks about prostitutes, think about it. We're talking about someone they probably don't know. They have no commitments with. They're not doing life together. And here's what he says. And you're buying their body. You're buying it. Or as Paul was saying, you're joining yourself to them in the deepest possible way. It just doesn't fit what you've been called to in Jesus. And so he gives us this word. Look at verse 18. How do you respond to this? And the answer is, run. Run. Look, you will find yourself, probably, you will find yourself in situations where you have to make decisions. Sometimes you're not even looking for them. They just find you. You know what I'm saying? Paul says in verse 18, he says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside of the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Here's the idea. When sexual temptation presents itself, your new motto is, I am Forrest Gump. I'm going to run because that's what it means. You physically get yourself up and you physically get yourself out of the situation. Get out of there. It's interesting because if you look with, 
if you look at all of the things that the church deals with and the sins that are mentioned in Scripture, almost all of them, you see it says, stand up to them, fight them, not this one. It's like, get out. Physically get yourself out of there. Here's another way of looking at it. Don't even put yourself in the position where you can fail. Get out. And here's why. And this is what Paul was talking about. Because when you sin sexually, there are a few things that we have to remember. It is first, it is a sin against God. It is. I mean, after all, it was His creation, it was His good work that we then take and distort into something that it wasn't meant to be. It's a sin against Him. So rather than it be an act that God blesses and for you to enjoy, it becomes a means of simply satisfying a desire. Second, it's against the person that you're having sex with. In other words, they become an object to satisfy your desire. you got to understand, he's writing this letter to the church at Corinth, right? The Corinthian men weren't seeing these women, or even men, as created in, the, in God's image, but as something to be bought, something to be used, and something to be left when they decided that they were done with them. It's a sin against them. And then third, he says, it's even a sin against yourself. Have a higher view of yourself than this. Love and respect yourself more than this. Because what you do with your body affects you. Uh, The bottom line is, many sins, they hurt others. But here's what Paul says, sexual sin will hurt you. It will. J.D. Greer gave an example about this years ago, and I thought it was a good one. I'll share it with you. He said, it's almost like if you were to, I probably should roll my arm up, uh, sleeve up, but, and I'm not going to give you the example in life because it would hurt. But if I were to take duct tape and I were to wrap it around my arm, right? And I were to go, and I were to rip it off. Now you know why I'm not doing the example. The pain of it all, right? Boom, and I rip it off. Well, I would rip my hair off. That's one thing. But let's imagine for a second that I take the exact same duct tape and I wrap it around my arm again and I pull it back off. What's the difference? And the answer is, after you do that a number of times, the duct tape doesn't have the same effect even on you anymore. The duct tape stops losing its duct tapiness. It doesn't stick like it used to. And when we, and when we treat sex the way that the Corinthians did, it doesn't have the same place in our life either. Tim Keller said this, he said, sex outside of marriage is not a sin because it's bad, but because in the way that God created it, it's so good. Here's some other thoughts. Here's, here's, I know what some of you are thinking. I don't have these people's problems. You know what? Good if you don't, and I mean that. Good if you don't. But there's something else that I think we have to talk about, and it's the elephant in the room, and that's pornography. Because it's a little bit different when you go, well, I haven't had sex with a Corinthian prostitute, so that's good. But maybe we need to talk about something else. MindGeek, just so you know, uh, which is the owner of of a conglomeration of pornographic sites, said that they had 54 trillion visits to their website in 2020 which means that's 4.5 trillion visits to one of their websites per month. And just so you know, it's not just a male issue, it's a female issue. 
They're now saying that one-third of addicts to pornography are now women. It's not just a man thing. Uh, a 2015 study by the Journal of Sex Research said that constant novelty and primacy of sexual stimuli as particularly strong naturally, reward, naturally reward, rewards makes internet pornography a unique activator of the brain's reward system. Here's basically what that means. That means that it becomes a common thing because you have now made a decision that wires your brain to get a pleasure response when you find yourself in a very difficult place in life. So maybe you're dealing with stress. Maybe your marriage is struggling. I don't know. But once you start to go down that road, you have basically wired your brain to go back to the same place because you got a pleasurable response. And so when you find yourself in a situation that you don't like to be in or life circumstances that you just wished were different, you now have a center in your brain that draws you back to the place where you can get a hit of something pleasurable. Make sense? Researchers have even pointed out that changes to the brain are similar to drug addictions. Here's some other information. Pornographers are targeting kids that are in the range of 11 to 12 years old. And the research has shown that it takes only about three days for children of that age to become addicted. Children 10 years old and younger account for 22% of all online obscene content that is consumed. Let that soak in a little bit. 10 years old and younger account for 22% of all online obscene content consumption in the 18 years old and younger category. Children 10 years old and younger account for 22% of all of it. That seems to me to be quite a lot. The average age of exposure to pornography is now around 10 years old. And here's the other thing. Think just TV. The average kid will have seen over 14,000 depictions of sex on TV before they get out from the roof of your home and go to college. Based on the studies, there are almost 20 million people that are, that are sexual addicts in the United States right now. Cornelius Plantinga, he is a, a New Testament scholar. He said, addictions begin when we use something we believe will relieve stress, but then eventually the addictions create their own distress, and finally addicts spiral down when they try to cure the additional pain with the very thing that caused it. Seems a lot like the people in our country right now and well beyond our country. Like I said, it used to be seen as a man's problem, but not anymore. And here's the problem with it. Eventually, you have to have more to get your hit and your buzz. The initial effect that it has on you doesn't work anymore, and so you have to consume more and more, and then what it is that you have to take in to consume to get you stimulated doesn't work, and you have to change. Something I want you to remember, because it also affects families. According to the National Coalition for the Protection of Children and Families, in 2010, 47% of families in the United States reported that pornography is a problem in their home. Almost half. Almost half. Pornography use increases the marital infidelity rate by over 300%. Because if you're willing to, I don't know, give your eye to another woman or another man, eventually you'll lower your guard. You're willing to give your body to another woman or another man. You've already started with compromise. 40% of people identified as sex addicts lose their spouses. 58% suffer considerable financial losses, and about 33% have lost their jobs because of it. 
68% of divorce cases involve one party meeting a new lover over the internet, while 56% involve one party having an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. I could do more, I just wanted you to see it. That's the elephant in the room. Ray Ortland said this, he says, look, sex is like fire. In the fireplace, it keeps us warm. Outside of the fireplace, it burns the house down. And he's right. And then he goes on to say this. He says, because when it comes to sex, Satan shows you the bait, but he hides the hook. He always hides the hook. I don't want you to see the consequences of where this goes. I just want you to see the bait. So here's what Paul goes on to say. Verse 19. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? And here's what he says, church. You are not your own. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. So honor God with your body. Honor God with your body. Something that I want you to hear this morning. Jesus died for all of our messed up lives. He died for all of our messed up lives. And in every single way that they are messed up, he died for that. Let's make the, the mess a matter of the past, and let's remember that his grace is sufficient to cover these things. I want you to remember St. Augustine, if nothing else. If it can cover his past, friends, it can cover yours. Believe it. His grace is enough. I'm reminded of this from Tim Keller. He said, there's more grace and forgiveness in Jesus than there is sin in you. And he's right. God's salvation doesn't come in response to your changed life. A changed life comes in response to salvation that was offered to you as a free gift. That is the way that it works. And so the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared to believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we had ever dared hope. So when you accept the forgiveness that Jesus offers, he removes the guilt. He makes you clean. Here's what he said. But you got to come back to me. You got to come back to me. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.